This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 345. You are like the the ultimate podcaster. Just your your voice is just spectacular, and and the way you ask questions, and your demeanor, and your pacing. This is beautiful. Hi, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. This is the podcast. It's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. My name is Jeff Brown, and I'm here because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading has got to be a part of your overall plan. I'm going to help you narrow this reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from uh, what I consider to be some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Today, that author is a guy by the name of Stephen Shapiro. We'll be diving into his new book, Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. I'm going to ask Stephen to share about why many of us struggle when it comes to asking the right questions, the impact of asking the wrong questions, We'll dive into some of his super helpful lenses for reframing our questions and much more. If after hearing today's conversation, you decide you want to dive in deeper, check out some of the links and resources recommended, you can do that simply by going to the show notes page. For this episode, that's found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 345. Stephen Shapiro started his innovation journey by founding and leading a 20,000-person process and innovation practice during his 15-year tenure at Accenture. Now, since leaving, he's authored six books on the topic, including Best Practices Are Stupid, and has become a regular columnist for Inc.com. He's here today to help us utilize an effective and systematic approach to dealing with any problem. And it all starts, uh, Stephen says, by asking better questions. His new book is called Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. I'm excited to have him on Read to Lead. Stephen, welcome officially to the show. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Looking forward to uh, the conversation. Well, I wasn't very far into your book before I made the decision that I was going to be buying this book for several people. I immediately thought of, including myself, many people that that this book could help. And it's the kind of book, and I, I, I assume this was intentional, that uh, you know, it, it just serves as a valuable resource, something that you know upon reading it that you're going to refer back to uh, again and again. Well, that was my my intention was to create almost like a tool mm. rather than a book. So, and it really is built around a tool that I developed. I wanted it to be practical. That's why, like in the hard copy of the book, there's mm. actually a centerfold that you can rip out. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and and that that's all I want. I want people to use it. I don't want people to read it and say, "Oh, that was interesting." I want people to actually apply it every single day to the work that they're doing. It's so applicable, and and I think of like my mastermind group and friends of mine who run businesses that can be really helped by a book like this. So uh, that leads me to my first question, and that is, what are some of the ways better questions lead to better solutions? Well, the biggest challenge that we have, I think, as human beings is we are so focused on answers and results and the end game that we don't step back and really make sure we're pointing in the right direction. So if I'm trying to, uh, for example, golf, I mean, I'm a terrible golfer, but you know, if you're, if you're golfing, the, the first thing you do is you line your feet up and you look where you're going mm. because you need to make sure at least you have a sense of direction. But then the key is to step back and look at the ball. And that to me is the key is we need to get back to the basics of where are we starting with this? Because if I'm asking the wrong question, then whatever solution I develop 
is going to be an irrelevant solution. <laughs> and, and I think that's unfortunately what I see a lot of individuals and companies and teams doing is they're solving problems. They get a satisfaction out of solving a problem. Oh, look at this great idea. Isn't this a great? But it didn't create value. And value to me is really the measure of success of something. And so and value can be measured a lot of different ways, not just financially, but it could be about, you know, positive societal impact. And so if we don't ask the right questions, we'll never get the right answers. It's that simple. It reminds me of a fortune cookie that I had once, which <laughs> said, you always have the right answers. They just sometimes answer the wrong questions. <laughs> well, uh, why, why do most of us, uh, Stephen, struggle with this? You know, as I read your book, you know, I realized that oftentimes it comes down to uh, a better question is like changing a single word uh, and it just dramatically changes everything. So is that one of the reasons why a lot of us struggle with this? There's just so many little nuances to, uh, to it and, and we end up asking terrible questions when we don't recognize those things. I think that is definitely part of it. Is I, don't, I don't think we've been trained in it. Mm. I mean, we, we've been trained to develop solutions. I mean, in business, we've always said, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. The, the, the issue with that is we've got a lot of solutions to irrelevant problems. And so we've not been trained and we don't train our, our employees and our teams to be able to think this way. But it's actually even, it goes further back than that is we're not wired to think this way. I mean, our primary function as a human being is survival. Yes, we innovate in order to survive. Yes, we adapt in order to survive. But survival is still primarily, for most people, the name of the game. And so what happens is we, when we're in survival mode, think about what happened with the pandemic. So immediately what happens is everybody's like, how can I replicate what I've been doing in the past? And therefore, all they're trying to do is take a live meeting and put it online. But that's not innovation. That's a survival <laughs> mentality. That is, that's, a you know, adopting. That's not even adapting. That's adopting something to be able to achieve a goal, which that doesn't really lead to good results. So we're, we're wired for that survival. And that's why a lot of times we don't ask good questions because asking good questions takes time. And we typically don't want to take that time. <laughs> I want it done yesterday. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, let, let's dig in here a little bit to some of the uh, the lenses, but what do we need to know about the lenses before uh, jumping into each of the, the five major categories of lenses that you talk about in the book? Sure. So the, the, the whole concept of the lens is that there are solutions everywhere. No matter where you go, there is a, a solution to your problem. Unfortunately, it's typically hidden because we're not wearing the right glasses. You could call it that. I mean, it's like if you go to the, an optometrist and they have that humongous machine they put in front of your eyes and they keep on changing the lenses and something goes from completely blurry to all of a sudden crystal clear. Well, the lenses that I've created for reframing problems basically serves the same purpose. Is it allows you to get clarity around something which might have been blurry or invisible before. Mm. And the reason why this works, and I think this is really the key, is that as human beings – because we're in survival mode by design, we want to perpetuate the past because what we did in the past didn't kill us. Therefore, it seems safe enough to continue to do it. <laughs> so we build up a lot of assumptions based on our past. Mm. What worked for us in the past, we assume is going to work in the future. So anytime we're asking questions or coming developing solutions, they're always past-based in nature, built upon faulty assumptions. And what the lenses do is actually help you question those assumptions by forcing you to 
challenge certain aspects of the problem. Mm. So in the first uh, category of the five, we're talking about reducing abstraction. Maybe our, the questions we're asking, we realize are, are a little little too broad. What, what are some examples of how we can tackle that problem with better questions? You know, as human beings, we tend to ask questions in one of two ways. And one of them is they're too broad mm. because it's easy. You ask your employees, okay, how can I you know, increase revenues. Mm. Okay, that's great. You ask a thousand employees, you're going to get 10,000 answers. So when we ask these abstract questions, we get a lot of abstract and irrelevant solutions. <laughs> so what we need to do is we need to sort of break it down into something smaller. So one of the lenses, there's 25 lenses, five per each of the five different categories. One of the lenses under reduce abstraction is called the leverage lens. Mm. And the leverage lens basically says, if I could only solve one aspect of this problem, what would it be? What would give me the greatest impact? And so if we're talking about revenues, instead of saying, how can I increase revenues? Maybe what we need to do is go out and figure out who are our most profitable segments? Which types of customers give us the greatest revenues? Where do we think we have a differentiation where if we focus on those individuals or groups, we'll get the greatest impact? Or we could even use the leverage lens a different way, which is what's our greatest roadblock? Okay, I want to get to these individuals. What's getting in our way? What's the one barrier that if we could get rid of this one barrier, we would unleash a whole new range of customers? And so that's just one of the lenses under reduce abstraction. It helps us narrow in on something more specific. Well, in, in some cases, uh, oftentimes we have the opposite problem, right, Stephen? Uh, we need to increase abstraction versus the other way around. What kinds of questions would, would tend to prove helpful in, in that case? Well, it's interesting because a lot of times what we will do when we're asking questions is there are sometimes solutions masquerading as questions. <laughs> so it's sort of like, okay, well, we've been programmed to get solutions, so I'm just going to ask a question which validates my solution. Or it's a, a question that is so narrowly defined that it limits our ability to find new new solutions. So, for example, if I'm trying to solve a problem in a particular area, I'm, I'm in the hospitality industry, for example, and I'm making an assumption that I'm going to get the, the solution to this problem from someone else in my industry, well, maybe it's useful to increase abstraction. And increase abstraction means broaden the question. So lens number six, which is the analogy lens, mm. that lens is all around asking who else, who else has solved a similar problem, not the same problem, but a similar problem in a different area of expertise. One of the things that we know from an innovation perspective is that the biggest breakthrough, there's so many studies that prove this, the biggest breakthroughs always come from either multidisciplinary teams or people from a different industry or area of expertise that provide a solution. And so by asking that analogy, who else has solved a similar problem, we can find some brilliant solutions. And the, the chapter that, that follows that or the section that follows that result, number seven, focus on what you're trying to accomplish. I love the example here. You talk about, you know, a, a solution masquerading as a question. There's the example of the, of the leadership development issue uh, at a company where they brainstormed, how can we more effectively use 360 degree feedback? Well, the real question becomes and the more helpful question becomes, how can we create powerful leaders? Right. I love that. Um, the, the third category relates to Stephen says changing our perspective. Uh, what, what are some of the lenses that can help us do that? These are some of them, I think, some of the most interesting lenses in some respects. One of the ones that I'll highlight is lens number 11, which is the resequence lens. And the resequence lens talks about timing. 
like we might make an assumption. The example that I find just to explain timing is if you go into a fast food restaurant during peak times, they will have prepared a number of hamburgers that are under the warming lamps because hmm. they know pretty much how many they're going to sell over the course of the time and couldn't make to each individual order. Whereas during slower times, they will actually wait until they get the order. So that's hmm. a prediction where we're using the warming lamps versus a postponement where it's waiting until we actually get the order. Then there's parallelism when things happen at the same time. And so when we look at things from a timing perspective, we always assume that time is sort of fixed. And if we look at meetings, for example, we assume that people, now maybe we're meeting on Zoom, but we assume that with meetings, people are getting together, they are having conversations real time. But what if you were to do things before? Like what could actually happen before the meeting? So I think about most status meetings, most business meetings, it's some person getting up in front of a room, talking for five minutes about something that's going to bore you to death. And then the next person gets up and talks for five minutes about something. And then the next person talks and you're sitting there like, just like, oh, okay, can't wait for this to end. What if before the meeting, each person sent a five minute video that everybody could watch whenever they want. So instead of it being synchronous conversations, it's asynchronous delivery of content. And then the meeting becomes a much shorter meeting focused on actual discussion and conversation. So we can change the timing of any problem to find completely different and in many cases, better solutions. It reminds me of the uh, sort of switching up education in some areas of the world where the teaching happens whenever the students want to consume that teaching, usually via video. And then when they come to class, that's where the actual homework happens. Yes. I mean, that's a great example of just mixing things up a little bit. I, I think that we tend to have a very fixed mindset when it comes to time mm. or location and things of that nature. And a lot of that's shifting, but almost any problem you're working on, you can think about the timing of things to get a completely different range of solutions. I, one of the examples which I always like is, you know, you think about back in the days, if you went to a paint store, they would have shelves filled with all different colors of paint. And you would go in and they would predict which colors people would want. Well, now they don't do that. Basically have white paint <laughs> on the shelves and then whatever color you want, they mix it based on your exact needs. And so they've postponed the mixing of the color and that gives them more flexibility. It gives them the ability to really meet the, the customer's needs in a way that wasn't possible before. Would that be just in time mixing or something like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, also, I want to talk next about uh, category four, uh, switch elements. Uh, what does that look like when practice? What does that look like in the real world? So in most cases, we tend to look at a problem as being single dimensional. Mm. And most problems are actually multidimensional. So one of the lenses, lens number 16, is the flip lens. This is a story I tell all the time. So if people have heard me before, they will have heard uh, the much longer version of this story. But it's basically a uh, baggage claim. And the baggage claim story is a, an airport had people complaining about the amount of time it took for their bags to arrive at baggage claim. So the initial problem they focused on was how can we speed up the bags? Mm. What they eventually realized was the passengers were getting to baggage claim so quickly because it took the bags eight minutes to get to the baggage claim, but the passengers only took one minute. So what they did was they basically reconfigured the airport. Instead of speeding up the bags, they slowed down the passengers. Mm. And they moved the conveyor belts further away so that it would take the passengers eight minutes to walk to baggage claim. And if you think about it, the problem they really were focused on is wait time. Mm. 
Now, wait time sounds the same as the speed of the bags because we think of that as the only dimension, but actually wait time is the speed of the bags and the speed of the passengers. So these switch lenses are really about how do we solve for this rather than this? Hmm. And in most cases, there's multiple dimensions to a problem. And a lot of that comes down to uh, challenging our assumptions. And that's something I want to maybe have you dig into a little bit more deeply uh, with this fifth category, zero in. Uh, and there are chapters in this section called real problem, real business. Talk about the need to examine your own assumptions, particularly in these areas. I always find that the zero in lenses are, are the most important, in many cases, the most overlooked because it takes time. You know, it's mm. one thing to say, you know, coming back to an example you used before is we want to use 360 degree feedback or maybe we want to create great leaders. But is that really the problem? Mm. Is even great leader? Maybe maybe it's not a leadership problem. Maybe it's a recruitment problem. Maybe mm. you, you're, you're hiring the wrong people or maybe it's a communication problem and that people don't know how to work together. They don't know the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. So mm. what's the real problem becomes critically important. Uh, and I think to go with that is the real business lens. And the real business lens is one which I'm always fascinated by because it really gets at major underlying assumptions that organizations, corporations make about their business. Now, I'll give you just a simple example using my business. I would have in the past described myself as a professional speaker. Now, is speaking my business? Mm. Well, if I think about it from that perspective, then it limits my ability to do other things. But if I think of myself as a as an intellectual property owner who delivers my content in a variety of different ways, well, now all of a sudden that's a completely different business. And, you know, the, the example, it's sort of well-worn, but everybody knows like Kodak. You know, Kodak thought it was in the film business. Mm. Now Kodak developed, they developed the digital camera, yet it was the digital camera that basically put the knife in them. Mm. Because when you think you're a film business, anything that's not film isn't going to be part of your business plan, when in fact, they were probably in the capturing and sharing moments business. Right. So getting that right is so critical, uh, because without that, you, again, it comes back to what we were saying before, is if you solve the wrong problem, the answer you get is irrelevant. And I would say it's in many cases even worse, because if you're solving the wrong problem, you're moving further and further and further away from the right answer. So it's it's much worse than stagnation. Sometimes doing nothing is better than going in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, I like that uh, your book, unlike most business books I read, frankly, is a is a taught 150 or so pages. Was there ever any pressure to make the book a little thicker just because? <laughs> <laughs> just because. Well, I intentionally this time, so my last four books were traditionally published the last two prior to this were with Penguin. And with this one, I decided I wanted to, what's called hybrid publishing. It's a form of self-publishing. And, and the main reason for that is I wanted complete control over the content. Mm. I wanted to control the length of the book. And I decided the book's going to be as long as the book needs to be to get the, the, the points across. It could have been a 50-page book. It could have been a 500-page book. To me, the length was less important than it being just, you know, it's, it's sort of like chiseling away whatever shouldn't be there so mm. that it's everything you want and nothing else. So I had complete control over the length, over the cover design, over the interior, that centerfold that I talked about. But also I, I own the intellectual property coming back to you know the real business thing. If you think of yourself as an author, then your book 
is your business, but all the content that's in the book, I want to use it a lot of different ways in videos and tools and other materials. And I can't do that with a traditionally published book. So even asking that real business question, that real business lens was important for me in developing the book. Well, I, I think it's one of those kinds of books that's, it feels right. It feels good in your hand. It's just, it's just right. It's, it's, I'm thinking Goldilocks here. It's, <laughs> it's not too long. It's not too short. It's everything you need and, and nothing you don't. Well done. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you, Stephen, not directly related to the book. But uh, before I dive into those, uh, anything else from uh, the book you want to make sure we walk away with? Well, I, I love that you brought up Goldilocks only because to me, that is metaphorically speaking, a, a, just a great way to think about reframing problems. Because a lot of times we ask problems that are using the bed, one bed's too soft, one's too hard, and one's just right. We often will ask questions that are too soft, too abstract. And when we do that, we invite a lot of irrelevant solutions. And sometimes they're too hard, too specific, uh, not abstract enough. And then we have such a narrow range of possible solutions. So getting that just right question is to me the whole purpose of the book is how do we get questions that produce the greatest value? So I love that you brought up that analogy. <laughs> uh, you mentioned speaking earlier. Uh, I'd be curious to know, uh, Stephen, if you could pass along any tips you've learned along the way to someone who wants to get better at that skill, what, what advice would you give? Yeah, speaking is, I think it's just a wonderful uh, opportunity for people if you have a chance to do it. And I, I think the key is to, first of all, recognize what you share has to be of interest for the audience. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, you know, we think we're all that fascinating when in <laughs> fact, you know, we're, we're only fascinating if other people think we're fascinating. <laughs> right. And so I think that's just really important. Uh, and I think we need to not try to model someone else. And so what happens is somebody will see Gary V, you know, dropping F-bombs and like, okay, I'm going to be like Gary V, or mm -hmm. you're going to see someone else who's a, you know, particular polished way, whatever it is. And I remember early on in my speaking career that the the thing which I had to do that was most important was to find my voice, my natural way of communicating. Now, look, if your natural way of communicating is boring as all heck, you know, I, I remember one time <laughs> seeing Henry Kissinger. Now, fortunately, Henry, Henry Kissinger has incredible stories. So he was totally fascinating. But if, if he were your typical speaker, maybe not so dynamic. Mm. But find your own voice. Find your own stories. It has to be fun. And I think that the best speakers are the people who aren't speaking but they're having a conversation with one person in the audience. Mm. And and I, I don't always do a great job of this myself. I, I have to remind myself a lot. But I think that's just really important is just, just talk like a human being, not like you're on a, a game show, which you know, I think you <laughs> tend to do. Yeah. And I think that advice goes for not just speaking, but for uh, if you're doing a podcast, if you're recording video, if you're sending an email, talk to, talk to one person. Um, uh, what's a book or two that you tend to recommend uh, that others read over your illustrious career? Certainly there's a, a handful that maybe you go back to again and again yourself that uh, have had a profound impact on you. What might those be? I like some of the older books, probably my, my favorite book, just because it is, I think the ultimate book on creative thinking ever published is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. Hmm. And it's Basically, it's an autobiography uh, by Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist. And it's just the, his antics. I mean, here's a guy who's was one of the most brilliant minds on the planet, yet he played bongos in Brazil and he would sit around playing with chalk 
in his house to see if he could find a way to have the ants just naturally walk out of his house or <laughs> becoming a safe cracker in Los Alamos. And it's just, you, you read it and you're laughing and they're funny, but then you step back and say, wait, here's a guy who is one of the smartest people on the planet, yet he has this wide range of curiosity. Mm. This, he's, he, and, and that to me really just stuck with me is that, that level of curiosity, rather than just digging deep into physics and things of that are, you know, that, and it comes back to what we talked about before, sometimes the best solutions come from somewhere else. Well, I believe that a lot of his brilliance came because he didn't just focus on physics, he focused on a lot of other areas. And then the other book, which I always go back to is Man's Search for Meaning, that's a classic. Mm. Uh, I, I do believe that at times, uh, you know, we get caught up in the the wrong areas of focus in our life. And if it comes back to even asking better questions, how do we find meaning in the questions? How do we find more meaningful questions? How do we find questions that are meaningful to us? And how do we find questions that are meaningful to others? Because questions aren't just intellectual activities. They are also emotional activities. And the more we generate emotion in ourselves and the people who are engaged in the process, I think the more powerful the solutions will be. I just had someone thank me yesterday for recommending uh, Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning to them. Love that book. Well, I'd be curious to know uh, if you can share as you look to the rest of 2020, and maybe you just want to put that behind you and look ahead to 2021, <laughs> whatever the case may be, what's what's ahead for you and your team that you're excited about and, and willing to share? Well, 2020 has been an interesting year. I, I don't even necessarily say I want to put it behind me mm-hmm. because I had two goals for two themes. I don't like goals as much, but I like themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for 2020. And I create these in 2019. So before all this started to happen, my two themes were virtual and local. Mm. I live in Orlando, Florida. I love being here. It's the second largest convention city in the country. And so my goal was to do as many speeches and workshops that are a drive away from my house. And when I can't, do them virtually. Mm. That was my plan. And so I love the fact that People are more engaged virtually. Mm. I mean, I just did an event yesterday for a live audience that was actually in Barcelona, Spain. There were people gathered together live in a in a theater mm. in Barcelona, and I'm beaming to them from Orlando. I didn't. I, lo- I love Barcelona, but I didn't have to get on a plane. <laughs> and and I love that. And I love the fact now that I can I believe deliver my message to more people because more people are open to learning digitally. And so I'm actually excited for the future. I'm taking a lot of my content and just packaging up in easy to consume ways so that more people can get access to it. Because I I really do believe that what I share in the book uh, and the general philosophy can change somebody's life and change their business. And I just want people to use it. That really is, that makes me so happy when somebody uses it and they get the value from it. Love it. Well, uh, Stephen's book, again, is called Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. I warn you, if you buy it, and I encourage you to do that, you will want to also buy it for everyone you know. So just just be prepared for that. Stephen, thank you so much for being our guest today on Read to Lead. I really enjoyed having you. Oh, I, I thought this was a great conversation. I just, I love the way you ask great questions because I think that is the key to even a good podcast. Once again, to dive deeper into today's episode, connect with Stephen online, check out the links and resources we talked about. Just visit the show notes page created just for this episode found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 345 for episode 345. I love getting your feedback on the podcast and specific episodes. If you have anything you'd like to let me know, you can reach out to me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. 
And if you don't mind the occasional email from me in your mailbox, I encourage you to grab my free resource on the 12 best business and personal growth books. That includes not only my take on each of those 12 books, but thoughts from previous guests. Just visit the website and look for the form at the top right of the page. That's readtoleadpodcast.com, of course. In the coming weeks, we'll be hearing from authors like Robert Rosenberg, Shelley Archambault, Jan Benedict Steenkamp, Brian Sanders, and next week, Arlene Pellicane makes a return visit to the podcast. That will do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, as always, leaders read and readers lead. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.